It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Well, Hillary, first of all, thank you for sending us on this mission. This is Kristen Conger. I did send her on a very important mission, but first I want to tell you who she is. Kristen hosts a podcast called Stuff Mom Never Told You, along with a woman named Caroline Irvin. Hello! Stuff Mom Never Told You is one of my favorite shows. Kristen and Caroline just totally geek out on research. One of Caroline and mine's favorite things to do is read lots of studies. On their podcast, Kristen and Caroline research what it means to be a woman in every way that you can imagine. They research anxiety disorders. They research adult acne. They research why women are labeled as nags and and why we call breasts boobs. Their love of research and, and their ability to make boring studies super entertaining is why I asked them to help me out with today's show, which, as promised, is our second episode about C-sections. If you missed last week's episode, go check it out. It's episode number 71. In that one, we sent a man to go get a C-section simulation. Yeah, it was kind of weird. And we also heard from one woman who was traumatized by her first C-section. But of course, there are a million different ways that women process their C-sections, and there are also a ton of reasons why moms get them. And those reasons vary depending on where in the world you live or even what hospital you're at in, in the same town. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank. There are so many C-section studies out there, and it is hard to know what information you can trust because the findings often contradict each other. So today, we are not going to have any big lightning bolt answers for you about the cesarean, because that's just not possible. But I wanted to be able to wrap my head around this surgery a little better, so I asked Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin to mine through the studies, the data, the papers, and to dig up some things that stood out to them, you know, things that might help us think about C-sections in new ways. So I feel like I need to point something out before we get started, which is that your voices are very similar. And uh, I wonder yes. if you can tell us how we can differentiate you. So this is Kristen's voice, and um, my voice tends to be a little bit raspier than Caroline's. And this is Caroline, and I'm not sure how to distinguish my voice. When I approached Stuff Mom Never Told You about this topic, the thing that I knew for sure was the C-section rate in the United States— It's 30%, and that's of all births in this country. The World Health Organization says that's double the rate that we should have. They recommend a rate of 10 to 15%. I asked Kristen and Caroline to help us understand how we got here. They say that there are hints of cesarean-like procedures going way back in ancient culture, in Hindu and Greek and, and Roman folklore. And then there are Chinese etchings that show babies being cut from wombs. The procedure back then was mainly used to save the life of the baby when the mother wasn't going to make it. The first written record of both a mom and a baby surviving the operation 
was in the year 1500. It's sort of an apocryphal story of this Swiss cow herder, basically, who supposedly performed the operation on his wife. So, like, hey, this guy is used to cutting open pigs, so surely he can do the operation on his wife. Again, like, the actual accuracy of that story is questioned, but that's the first written record we have of both mother and baby surviving. The the surgery itself was first pioneered in, I believe it was the 16th century, with the invention of the Chamberlain forceps, which uh, allowed doctors or midwives as well to um, more safely remove the baby from the uterus. But the technology back at the time obviously was very rudimentary, didn't have um, as many (laughs) uh, precautions such as antibiotics and um, safety involving that. So it was a very dangerous procedure for a really long time. So C-sections really started to take off more in the 19th century as uh, medicine became a little bit safer and also um, you have... (laughs) The uh, the acceptance of anesthesia during childbirth, which was something that uh, new moms weren't really allowed to have because it was thought that we should sort of suffer like Eve in the Bible, um, that this was, you know, kind of our cross to bear to, again, make a biblical allusion. But then Queen Victoria had none of this, and she insisted on having chloroform when she gave birth. And that helped open the door to the acceptance of anesthesia during cesareans, which then led to a rise in cesareans because obviously they would become a bit more bearable for the moms in 1908. I really, I really liked this fact. We saw our first rise in cesareans in the United States after the publication of an article by one Dr. Franklin Newell of Harvard called The Effect of Over-Civilization on Maternity. And Dr. Newell argued that wealthy and, quote, bookish women should get cesareans because they were too weak and apparently too well-read to be able to withstand vaginal births, whereas working-class women were very hardy and strong, and so they could go ahead and have um, a vaginal birth. And it was really with Dr. Newell that we start to see, too, the socioeconomic um, divide that still exists today in some areas between women who have C-sections and women who don't. So the socioeconomic thing you're talking about, um, are you saying that women who are more well-off are more likely to get C-sections? Yeah, well, A, C-sections cost almost double what a typical vaginal birth costs, but B, private hospitals across the board, almost regardless of country, Um, or region see way more, way more C-sections than public or university hospitals. So Kristen and Caroline, um, what did you find out about the reasons why people are getting emergency C-sections? Right. I think the greater question should be if women didn't want to have a C-section 
but they had one. Why? Was it to save a life, the life of the mother, the life of the baby? Or was it because they were pressured into it by their doctors? That You know, there was a great Harvard Magazine article that I was looking at that cited medico-legal reasons. You've got rising malpractice premiums and the number of litigated cases increasing around childbirth. And there's A saying, apparently, that no one gets sued for doing a C-section. So among doctors, there is an elevated perception of risk for them. And we're not even talking about the mother or the child. We're talking about the medico-legal risk, so to speak, for the actual physician. So if we're hearing that in the United States we're having double the number of C-sections that we should be having— Does that mean that half of the ones that are happening are not medically necessary? I don't know that that's necessarily the case. This is Kristen, uh, based on everything that we've read. And in terms of that 15% baseline, I think it's also important to note that in 2009, the World Health Organization backpedaled a little bit and said, you know what? We don't actually know the optimum rate, especially considering how much that rate varies from country to country. They said, but the goal overall, whatever that percentage might be, is to avoid both really, really high numbers and really, really low numbers. Because if the number is too high, obviously you're risking unnecessary and potentially harmful surgeries, not to mention they're quite expensive as well. But one thing that's important to keep in mind is that if they are too low, then you're also risking childbirth injuries and deaths. And it seems like we haven't calculated a number that is kind of that that golden standard, really. You see what I mean? This C-section stuff, it's so complicated. There are just so many factors at work. Like there's there's what the mom wants, then there's what the doctor wants. There are hospital rules and regulations. And then, of course, there are absolutely very valid medical reasons for some C-sections. Again, the WHO says in 10 to 15 percent of births. But there is not very much information for moms to help you determine in labor if your doctor is recommending a C-section for your sake or for theirs. No wonder we feel all kinds of mixed up about it. After the break, we'll hear some of the reasons you've gotten cesareans and how you felt about it. Don't go away. We're back with Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin from Stuff Mom Never Told You. And it's time we brought you into our conversation. Both of our shows asked listeners to tell us about their C-sections. Some of your calls, they really surprised me. So I picked those out and I played them for Kristen and Caroline. Hello, my name is Devin Mitchell. I'm from Houston, Texas. At 36 weeks, my doctor decided that it was time for her to go ahead and deliver the baby um, via C-section. I was never given another option. When I went in for the C-section, the anesthesiologist made fun of my weight. Another doctor came in and was like, whoa, how did you let yourself get so big? You know, instead of trying to help me, they were berating me. Um, my anesthesiologist had to have someone else come in because I was so large and help me. 
and my doctor was a woman of color. I'm a woman of color myself, and I thought maybe, you know, she would be on my side, but she was right there along in there with them, ribbing me and making fun of my size and having people come in and out. I was like some type of circus show, scientific, science experiment for her to show off that, look, I can deliver a woman this size. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. So Devin, um, you know, she, she says she's overweight. She feels um, she was pushed into a C-section and there was not a lot of um, sympathy for her at the hospital. And I wondered if you came across any statistics in your research um, on demographics. Are there populations that tend to have more C-sections than others? Well, in 2008, for instance, going to Devin's experience, um, Black women underwent more C-sections in the United States than any other ethnic group. Even when it comes to low-risk births, back in 2005, a study that came out then still found that Black women had the highest C-section rates. And what about location? Where, where in the United States are you more likely to get a C-section? Just a moment. I imagine you sitting there with, um, like, a whole bunch of index cards. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> yeah, we have laptops and, and uh, papers, papers spread everywhere. Yeah. So according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's statistics from 2010, the states with the highest levels of cesareans are somewhat concentrated in... The Southeast, uh, the number one state was Louisiana, with 39.7% of births being uh, via C-section. The number two was New Jersey, so a, a little bit of an outlier. And those numbers, especially the ones coming from the Southeast, are linked to our geographically higher rates of obesity and diabetes. Okay, I want to play you another clip from a listener. My name is Anna Clara, and I am located in Dallas, Texas. I grew up in Brazil, um, but moved to the U.S. when I was 15. Um, my grandma had C-section. My mom had C-section. My aunts have had C-sections. So um, the, the first question that I got was, so what are you going to do? Are you going to come here to have the baby? Why don't you want to just schedule it? Like, don't you want to know exactly when you're going to have your baby? Why wouldn't you want to just cut it out? <laughs> That's kind of a gross one. But, I mean, that I know of, none of them have had any vaginal births. And I, so I think they have this vision that it's completely destructive to a woman's body without ever having experienced it themselves. And my mom had been kind of pushing me for a C-section just because it was in her comfort zone. So I told her I was... I was uh, in labor, and uh, she, I think, panicked as much as me and, and was really my, my partner through the delivery. Uh, I think 
the most memorable thing about the day my daughter was born is just the the fear that I saw in my mom's face <laughs> throughout the whole thing. Um, I, I think at some point she said, I, I can't believe that you, you're doing this. <laughs> Clearly, there are different cultural norms around cesareans um, outside the U.S. So I wonder if you can tell me about C-section practices around the world and, and how they compare to the United States. So according to the World Health Organization in 2010, Brazil's C-section rate was 41.3%, but in private hospitals, it's as high as 82%. Yeah. So then if we travel to Burkina Faso, where the cesarean rate is extremely low, a a study that came out in 2014 interviewing a number of women who had given birth in that country, they found a lack of communication between doctors and patients feeling like it was something abrupt that happened to them, that they were never really warned, that it was something that was just announced and Lots of feelings of recurrent guilt among women who had undergone cesareans and feelings that they weren't good mothers because they had delivered via, you know, the surgery rather than vaginally. So it's really fascinating to see culturally that extreme similarity with, you know, the conversations that are happening here in the U.S., And then in some parts of the world, um, unmedicated birth is the norm in, like, the Netherlands. Yeah, that region of the world definitely has the lowest rate of C-section. And in all of the cesarean data that we looked at, a lot of those countries usually stood out as having the, quote-unquote, you know, World Health Organization optimal, you know, 10 to 15 percent C-section rates. Yeah, even lower. I mean, Finland and Norway— tie at 6.6% for the lowest planned C-section rate, and Sweden has the lowest emergency C-section rate at 8.6%. I want to play you another listener clip. Kara Valakat from Ontario. I had two planned C-sections because I wasn't interested in the pain and the whole experience of childbirth. Uh, For the first one, I experienced some pressure from one of the OBGYNs at the clinic I was going to not to do a C-section. She told me because I was insisting on having a C-section, I had to hear the risks and benefits. And then she proceeded to tell me only the risks and had me sign a surgery consent saying it was all explained to me. I told them, look, I did my research and most of the studies that I've seen, which have a slightly higher uh, risk placed on C-sections than vaginal birth, are actually based on emergency C-sections, not planned. And my research also told me that the largest group of women choosing to have scheduled C-sections are doctors. And my usual OBGYN said kind of slyly at that time, yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? But we're not really supposed to tell you that. Hmm. I have so many questions about this call. Um, First, I want to know, is it true that most of the research um, about C-sections is about emergency C-sections and not planned ones? Yes, From the studies that um, we looked at, it was almost exclusively, you could tell, um, based on emergency procedures. Also, I want to know, what are the risks of C-section to the mother and the baby? So when compared with vaginal birth, uh, C-section delivery 
according to some studies, increases low-risk women's chances of certain potentially life-threatening problems like hemorrhage, blood clots, bowel obstruction. Um, More frequent risks that we found included bladder damage, infection, and just enduring or chronic pain. And I also wonder, too, if some of our anti-C-section judgment is at all related to a correlation between women who undergo C-sections being less likely to breastfeed, which in some context is um, positioned as a risk factor. And then when it comes to potential health risks for babies delivered via C-section, it tends to revolve mostly around respiratory distress and asthma as they get older, as well as some studies suggesting a link between C-section births and obesity. I also wonder, um, with this last clip, Kara talked about how her doctor um, said that doctors, when they deliver, tend to prefer to have their babies by C-section. Can you confirm or deny that? I can't confirm or deny that, but I can say that it fits very well and cleanly into the narrative about there being a rise in sort of scheduling concerns, um, whether it's on the doctor's part or the mother's part who's giving birth. Okay, we're going to take another quick break here. When we come back, we'll hear from moms who have had more than one C-section. Stay with us. We're back with Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin from the podcast Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, I want to talk about a kind of birth called a VBAC. That's a vaginal birth after cesarean. For a long time, doctors thought VBACs were not possible. Like like once you delivered by C-section, all of your future births would have to be C-sections too. Kristen told me that this idea traces way back to 1916, when a doctor named Edwin Cragen wrote a paper claiming that vaginal birth after C-section, or VBAC, was just too dangerous. It turns out Dr. Cragen was wrong. Sure, VBACs come with risks, and, and not all doctors will perform them, even today. But plenty of moms these days do have successful vaginal births after cesareans. Well, we have tape from a listener who had two C-sections, um, and for her third baby, she wanted a V-back very badly. And there was a hospital that agreed to help her attempt it, but she went into labor a little early, and she was not near that hospital. She was um, a three-hour drive away. And there was a hospital nearby that, that could deliver her, but they would need to do it by C-section. And she was so committed to this idea of a V-back that she decides to drive herself alone to her hospital that will do the VBAC. Um, Her name is Star, and here she is describing that drive. I actually took a picture with my phone looking down at my my belly. And so in this photograph, you see how lopsided my stomach is because my amniotic fluid was, was half gone by that point. And you see that I'm driving the car and it's really a, a horrifying picture when I think back to my state of mind and not that I was afraid. I was so determined. I don't think I've ever been so determined about anything in my life. I just knew I had to get to the hospital where I could have my V back. So in the end, Star does not get herself to that special hospital in time. Um, and she winds up having to give in and deliver by C-section at a closer hospital. 
that son will be five in June. And clearly, I still tear up thinking about it. I don't know that it's guilt about a C-section the way I felt guilt with my first one. Well, it, it is guilt. It's just a different kind of guilt. The first time I felt guilty that my body hadn't done its job, I thought, oh, maybe if I'd lost some more weight, maybe if I'd exercised more, maybe if I hadn't eaten, you know, chips and guacamole for dinner for six months straight, you know, something could have been different. I couldn't, I could have ended up with a, with a vaginal birth. But this time that, that third one, that missed attempt at the feedback. I think it was so upsetting because I had done everything. I had done more than everything. I drove myself to the hospital in active labor, for heaven's sake. You can't do any more than that. And to still not have it happen, it's the strangest combination of, of regret and anger and frustration, but also failure. And it sounds, I know it sounds ridiculous. And I have a beautiful, healthy baby in this feels like such a first world problem, but, but it's still, it still stings. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. So, so this woman, Star, uh, went to incredible lengths to have a VBAC, and, and she still felt like a failure. Um, and a lot of people um, who may express their feelings of failure or guilt are told, well, just be glad you have a healthy baby. Yeah, this was uh, something that uh, Elizabeth O'Brien, the maternal mental health therapist in Atlanta, um, went pretty in depth about that line of all that matters is that you have a healthy baby. She said that this is one of the least helpful things that you can really say because it delays emotional processing for new moms because essentially you're invalidating that experience. Now, we know that not all repeat C-sections are traumatic. In last week's episode, a woman named Kinsey had two C-sections. The first left her feeling a lot like Star. But in the second, she tried something different. Kinsey had a doctor who uses a surgical drape with a flap. And at the end of the surgery, the nurses lifted the flap so Kinsey could watch. The difference of me being able to see my own child coming from my own body was just so much different than the first time. You know, I got to, I just felt like I was a little more of an active participant than, you know, a three-fourth numb patient <laughs> sitting there. Um, I always had to fill in that gap with my first kid. You know, I had to imagine what it was like him coming out of me. And now with my second kid, I, I know what it was like. I saw it. Uh, this technique is actually termed family-centered C-sections, and it seems like from everything that we've read, the family-centered C-sections are far less potentially traumatic. 
uh, we also ran across an article about um, some nurses who invented their own family-centered C-section flap um, that they've patented as well. And the group of nurses, all of whom were women, I think were motivated to invent the surgical drape with the flap because of the, you know, these exact same issues, you know, that we've been hearing from listeners about of, of you know, seeing, witnessing firsthand, you know, that sense of disempowerment that, that some women experience. So today, Kristen and Caroline brought us lots of facts and and information and ideas that I had never heard before. But even with all of that, we still know very little about what causes some people to have the tortured feelings, like Star, who drove herself to the hospital, and other people to have the satisfied feelings, like Kara, who asked for a C-section. Because those studies about the emotions and feelings around C-sections, those studies haven't really been done yet. So I want to invite you to chime in. I know that lots of you out there have had cesareans, and I know that lots of doctors and nurses listen to this show. So we want you to use our website, longestshortesttime.com, as a place to continue this conversation. Go to this episode, episode 72, and give us some more clues to help us understand this surgery better. You can find the wonderful Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. Subscribe to their podcast in iTunes and subscribe to ours too. While you're at it, rate us and write us a review. This helps newbies to find our show. Next week, we return to audience favorites, Perry and Caitlin. He was wearing tattered clothes and a cowboy hat. Yeah, my sort of expedition hat. And people were coming up to me and saying, Perry does not smell good. It's true. He really, really stank. I was there. We've got a big update to Perry and Caitlin's on-again, off-again saga. So don't miss that show. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, and Abigail Keel. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineer is the Reverend John Delore. Our theme music is by the Batteries Duo. Special thanks to Anne-Marie Baldonado and Antonia Akitunde. And, of course, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear what's up with you and your families. So pitch us. Right now, we are especially on the lookout for stories about family secrets. And I'm not just talking about secret siblings here, not just infidelity. I'm talking about all kinds of family secrets. Be creative. We like funny. We like poignant. Most of all, we like to be surprised. So go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. Sing your wolf? Yeah. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf. 
Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.